Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. Welcome, everyone, to a special episode of Cold Steel. We're very happy to put out this episode, which is another episode of Mock Roll Exams. And we were quite lucky this time to actually be the beneficiaries of the AGS Conference, which is the Alberta Association of General Surgeons Conference. That was held back in November of 2021 this year. Um, it's a, an annual conference that's held every year in Alberta. And as part of that conference, Dr. Liz Clement, who is actually one of the uh, colorectal fellows here at uh, UBC and a former resident uh, from the UVA program, put together a session of mock oral exams for a bunch of the senior residents who are attending AAGS, um, as we really feel that uh, it's, you know, as much practice as possible for these uh, senior residents, it's just going to do them in good stead. And so once again, thank you to AHS for allowing us to use their space and, uh, and some time in, during the conference uh, to do the mock orals. And thank you to Dr. Elizabeth Clement for uh, putting this all together and really um, figuring out uh, the logistics of everything and, and making it happen and allowing us to use some recordings for mock orals. And thank you to all the examiners who were uh, all the surgeons from both Edmonton and Calgary. You know, thank you to all the residents as well who volunteered to actually be recorded you know this is a very brave thing to do is to put your your necks out there and and be recorded and uh, and also be examined when you you know the stakes aren't really uh, as high for them yet you know most of the residents actually that we have recorded are our fourth year residents so they're not in their fifth year not really in the throes of their exams but they're they're brave enough and really thoughtful enough to actually put themselves out there and uh and 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 go for it i thought this would be a good time dr ball to just go through some examinship techniques again particularly thinking about the mock orals what are some of the important tips and methodology tricks that you give to people when preparing for their oral exams yeah thanks so much amir for the, for the question i agree we should really thank the residents that were willing to put themselves out there and you know to an international audience and um, you know, we we intentionally, I think it's safe to say, have not over-edited this in any way. We wanted it to be raw, and we wanted, you know, really all trainees across Canada and, and elsewhere to to think about how these resident uh, candidates answered questions, what they thought was good, what they thought was bad, where they thought they would improve. Really, the same process that each of the, the residents got in terms of feedback. Um, so, really, uh, uh, kudos to them. You know, as far as um, sort of uh, organizing your, your thoughts and, and coming to an exam um, uh, with a strong presentation and a, and a really good performance. I would also encourage our listeners to go back to episode number 10 of Cold Steel and just revisit uh, our interview that you and I did with Tony McLean, who you know is the, is the current chief of the Royal College um, Examining Committee here in Canada. Obviously, he didn't go through any specific scenarios because, of course, he can't. But he did give us some pretty broad insights into examsmanship and, and what really matters. So, you know, a lot of my thoughts being trained by Tony long ago and being around him every day uh, come from guys like him and preceding that, Don Bowie and, 
and other uh, other folks that have been involved with the Royal College for a long time. So, I, you know, I think that the exam clearly has changed a lot over the years. Uh, it's quite focused. And I, I think one of the biggest surprises probably to candidates, and, and you could speak to this having done it not too long ago here, is the relatively rapid pace and, and focused nature of it. Hey? Uh, you know, might as well get the jokes out there right off the hop i actually was the, the special year that didn't have a oral exam so yes go ahead say all your the jokes about frcsc dash w but yes you know in, in even doing some of the you know seeing how these oral exams are put together or practicing them they go by really fast and so you really have to have an organized approach and uh, a thought process on, on how you're going to tackle and attack these uh, oral exams yeah I, I think that's that's exactly right you know and and in terms of things that probably set off or are seen as negatives uh, to the actual examiner, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is um, just be physically and verbally humble, uh, be respectful of the process, be uber respectful of the examiner's time and their willingness to take, you know, and traditionally in Canada anyway, a week off work to go to the, the Ottawa facility and do these oral exams. Um, you don't want to walk in with too much bravado and, and certainly don't want to be interpreted as arrogant. Um, so that's, you know, that's uh, probably not a problem for most folks, but it certainly is for some. And then you're right. The, the second thing is really to be organized, to, to present um, your thoughts in an organized, linear way that shows that you um, really have prepared well. Uh, I think candidates that that sort of jump around and seem a little bit um, <clears throat> confused, probably more than anything, um, you know, that can certainly put off examiners. Um, there, there's really no no doubt about that. Um, the reality, though, you know, as you probably know as well, Amir, is the, the examiners are there to not only examine you, obviously, for content and knowledge, but they're there to help you. And the exam really has changed significantly in Canada to to try and allow them, you know, if you do start to come off uh, the appropriate pathway to, to help you and nudge you back onto it. And, um, you know, they, they really are quite skilled at that at a, at a very, uh, at a very high level. Dr. Ball, um, do you have any specific uh, ideas or tricks that you give people to like kind of get themselves back on track if they start to come off the rails? You know, um, for example, some people are fans of, summarizing the case especially after kind of you've had the history and physical component uh, you know often um, not not every scenario I think is going to be like this but often you'll kind of get the history and the physical and then you'll have to come up with a differential and a plan um, and uh, you know I've heard certainly heard people talk about kind of summarizing the case um, are you a fan of that are there any other particular strategies that you tell people if they're kind of getting confused or if they feel like they're kind of um, losing track and focus during their uh, scenario? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, the, the summarization technique can be helpful, I think, to kind of buy you time and organize your thoughts a bit and show some organization to the examiner. But you certainly don't want to perseverate on it. And, and that's probably for two reasons. One is, again, the exam does have to move forward relatively rapidly. So you don't want to waste anybody's time, i.e. the examiner's time. The, the second thing is you certainly don't want to provide an, an overly long summary. Um, you want to, uh, more, more to the point, uh, you know, show you've been listening, show you're engaged, show you've you know, assimilated that information, but 
I certainly wouldn't spend too much time on it. Two things come to mind maybe in closing. The, the first is that, um, you know, my recommendation to anybody, particularly if you're doing fellowships in the U.S., is to do the American board exams as well. And there's lots of different reasons for that. But one is to be truthful. You know, it's it's really quite fun. And the, the process on the oral side, the oral examination side, is very, very different. And, and the experience is very different. There their exam is certainly um, uh, dictated by areas and domains that they have to ask you about, but it's much more the Wild West and it's much more um, an exam like you know Canada used to be. And really that that does highlight the, the structured, reasonable nature of the Canadian exam, there, there's no doubt. The other thing I would say is that, um, you know, a lot of people, whether they are naturally verbally strong or good at presentations, for example, at research meetings, um, don't necessarily examine well. And, and I would say that I was probably in that in that descriptor, um, and at my stage, you know, as a as a resident as well. What's great though, and what the reality is, that shouldn't hold anybody back, and it shouldn't discourage any any trainee. You can get as good as you need to, and, and become infinitely better just by practice. So grab your local faculty, grab recent graduates, grab your fellows, um, grab anybody you can and just keep practicing. Start early, try and do it, you know, don't, like don't leave it to the last three or four months. Work on it gradually. Uh, you know, as you can see, as you'll hear, I should say, um, these fourth year residents that, that did this did a marvelous job. And I, you know, thinking back to it, I think they're far ahead of where I was in terms of, of examination skills in my fourth year. So uh, don't be discouraged. Um, the content will come with work and effort, but it's really the, the process and the examsmanship skills that um, I think are not natural to a lot of us, uh, but can be learned just by drilling over and over again. And the one editorial note I'll also make, Dr. Ball, is that I feel like in preparing for the exam in general, um, first of all, you, you benefit again so much from just reading cover to cover these textbooks, really getting into the minutiae of this data. And it's surprising how often, you know, you'll see some crazily, what you thought was such a minutia type esoteric fact show up in real life. You know, Zushka's disease, some breast disease that, you know, I thought I would never see in real life. And yet one day on call, you'll see it. So that's one thing is that the exam really does help shore up your knowledge. And I think in particular for the oral exam, it's funny how, you know, you rehearsing for the 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 spiel that you're going to give. This is how I would do a um, trauma laparotomy. It's funny how those that mantras and those scripts that you ran in your mind for the exam suddenly appear and bubble up through the surface of your mind when you're actually faced with a real life scenario and you're suddenly like, okay, what do I need to do? And your adrenaline is kicking in and you're you're feeling that fight or flight reaction, you can't remember anything, suddenly these scripts start to bubble up through your mind. So, you know, I really do think beyond the exam, I think the the the, the studying that you do for this is really quite beneficial. It's not like, you know, many many of the exams we've taken up until this point where, you know, you, you memorize things and then you forget them. These things really do matter and, 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 and are very helpful. It's important to just make one disclaimer that we are not officially affiliated with the Royal College exam. And these are simulated scenarios and may not represent exactly the type of format that you might see on the Royal College. And really, these are more about getting familiar 
with the mock oral scenario and style as opposed to precise content from these scenarios. referred a 40-year-old who's recently found to be BRCA positive. She's unsure what this means and would like to know about her risk of cancer. So what are you going to say to her? Um, so um, I tell this young woman who is recently found to be BRCA positive that she carries a gene that uh, increases her risk of uh, developing breast cancer in addition to um, other cancers like ovarian um, cancer as well. Um, it doesn't mean that she um, will develop cancer for sure, but this is something that runs in her family and uh, her risk of developing cancer is higher than the general population risk of developing cancer. Okay. okay. And then you mentioned, did you say anything about percentages or do you know that? Um, I didn't say anything about percentages. Uh, I will let her know that because of the fact that she's BRCA1 positive, she'll have to start screening uh, for cancers at an earlier age. Um, yeah. okay. I'll have to look up the percentages. Okay. okay. Good. Just let me see if I can get this to go to the next slide. There. So, okay, so you talked to her about the risk. That's good. And then now we're going to tell her about options for this risk reduction. So how are you going to counsel her on what to do next? Uh, so, um, in terms of risk reduction for breast cancer for her, um, I would counsel her that we would recommend that she starts screening um, at an earlier age than general population uh, for uh, the development of breast cancer. Uh, we would use um, the usual modalities including um, screening mammography uh, to screen her for breast cancer and that, uh, the other option that would be available to her given that she is a high risk. Uh, would be prophylactic surgery to reduce her risk of developing cancer in the future. Okay, sorry, so what surgery did you tell her? What um, should she have? Uh, a prophylactic bilateral mastectomy. Okay. okay, so those are your options with surgery or surveillance? Surveillance. Okay. Okay. okay, so now what do you tell her? She says, well, what's my best option? What do you say? Um, I would tell her that you know, I would have to consult with one of my breast surgery colleagues uh, who sees this more regularly to tell her which option is better. Um, and that uh, you know, it, would, it would be a personal choice for her uh, if she was willing to uh, have the risk uh, or undergo the risk of having the prophylactic bilateral mastectomy it would be reasonable and I would suspect equivalent to having um, screening for uh, breast cancer uh, and then dealing with um, a, a, a malignancy if it arises and we could catch it early with uh, short screening intervals. Okay. Uh, okay, so let's say she, after you tell her all this, she settles on surveillance, okay? She's followed at the high-risk clinic, and she's good. She goes. She's adherent. Uh, she declined any kind of prophylactic uh, bilateral stopping nephrectomy. She also declined tamoxifen. You didn't mention, but just 
keep that in mind for later. Um, she wants another child, so she doesn't want to have that stuff. Okay, so then um, you see her in clinic after three years, okay? And then now there's a lesion that's found in the right breast. Because now you do this whole workup because there's a lesion. So she's got a T2, lesion ER, PR positive, invasive ductal cancer, no lymphadenopathy. Okay? So what are you going to recommend now? Surgery and what are you, you going to so recommend? So I'm a 43-year-old lady now with BRCA, known BRCA1 mutation that has a T2 hormone receptor positive invasive ductal carcinoma on yep. surveillance. Yep. Uh, I suspect that her, it says the workup is complete, so her staging yes. has been completed as well. Correct. There's no evidence of axillary disease. Yep. Um, I would recommend that she undergo a mastectomy um, with a sentinel node, um, sentinel lymph node biopsy to stage her axilla, as well as a prophylactic contralateral mastectomy to reduce the risk of, um, of uh, contralateral uh, breast cancer in the future. Okay. Sorry, it's not clicking, girl. Just give me a second. Okay, so that's the end of that one. I think we covered all of this. Okay, feel good? Don't be nervous. You gotta, you gotta, it's okay, you're doing okay. Okay, let's go to the next question. Okay, so we, sure. we're forgetting about breast now. You're done. You saved your life. It's good. <laughs> okay, this is a little bit more. We'll take some time to read through it, okay? So it's a 65-year-old male. He comes in with right upper quadrant pain and jaundice. Okay, he's got a temp, heart rate's up. Uh, you can see that blood pressure, 955, white cell count cell elevated, ALP is elevated, his billy's up. Okay, the lipase is normal, his lactate, you know, two and a half. So they did an ultrasound. The ultrasound shows there's a dilated um, extrahepatic ducts, and they're wondering about a stoma. Okay, this is his history. He's got atrial fibrillation. He's got a history of peptic ulcer disease, okay? He's had previous entrectomy with the uh, Y. Okay. He's on beta blocker. Okay, so let's think about what's your management. This is how he presents. You just went down to see him. Sure. Okay. So I have a 65-year-old gentleman who's presenting with fever, jaundice, and right upper quadrant pain, as well as uh, evolving hemodynamic instability with tachycardia and hypotension. Um, I would make sure that he's on appropriate monitors, um, including O2 saturation and a blood pressure cuff that's cycling regularly. I'd make sure he has two large bore IVs, and I would start him on crystalloid fluid resuscitation um, with one liter of Werner's lactate and then a maintenance of uh, of Werner's lactate at 150. Um, I would also start him on broad-spectrum antibiotics with Piperacillin uh, Tazobactam to address his cholangitis. Um, he um, does not have an elevated lactate and does not have any evidence of uh, end organ dysfunction, so I hope that this resuscitation will help address some of his instability. Um, the uh, past medical history of note is his previous Ronwai reconstruction, uh, which would make dealing with what sounds like a polydocolithiasis with extrahepatic duct dilation and a common duct stone more challenging because we're not, uh, it, it, he would not be amenable to a, a straightforward ERCP. Um, so um, once once I've managed to start him on uh, broad spectrum antibiotics, fluid resuscitate him, um, I would uh, plan for uh, an OR uh, to do a, a common bile duct exploration, either transgastric or transcystic. I suspect he still has his gallbladder though. Um, yes. No. Uh, yes, yes. He still has his gallbladder. Sorry. Yes, he still so he has his gallbladder yeah. and yeah. he has a common duct stone uh, with suspected cholangitis. Um, and does he stabilize with my resuscitation? He, he stabilizes. Let me just see. Uh, can I just go to the next slide? Yeah. 
Okay, yeah. Yeah, he stabilizes. Yes. <laughs> so he stabilizes. Um, so then my options are, we have to deal with this stone. Uh, do we have the RCP available or someone that can do an advanced ERCP procedure like uh, uh, rendezvous or uh, something? Yes, yeah. You have access to these things. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and do we have IR available? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, okay, so if he didn't resuscitate what we... If he wasn't resuscitating very well, then... Then I would take him to the operating room. Okay. Yeah. Or, or sorry, I would, I would take him to the IR suite for a PTC and drainage of his biliary system. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so let's say, let's, let's move on. So, uh, also, consideration of ICU. Okay. Um, so, okay, let's say this is, this is what's happening now. Okay. I, I've changed it. So, he is, you show your resuscitation, he's on Tazo. Uh, you don't actually have access to endoscopy, okay. but I have to get you to say no, all no, those no. things anyway. It's important to say that. But you have IR okay. to do that PTC. You had did, you did mention that. Um, and they agreed to do this if you can correct the patient's coagulopathy. Because it turns out, it takes a blood thinner. He forgot to tell you that part. The guy didn't tell you, right? Patients forget this all the time. So now his INR is two and a half. Okay, so he does take a blood thinner. So now what are you going to do? So... Uh, I have a hemodynamically unstable patient who is uh, anticoagulated with an INR of 2.5 and he needs an international procedure. Um, so I would uh, reverse him more acutely with uh, FFP and um, I would start by ordering two units of FFP and uh, have them running on his way to IR to okay. receive his PTC. Okay, good. So... Yeah. I'll also give him some vitamin K for this one. Okay. Okay. So they're going to take him to the ICU because he's still not doing so great, but that's okay. You correct the INR, and then they do the PTC, okay? And they decompress the biliary tree, take a job, they did everything, but they can't get past the stone, okay? It um, doesn't matter. The patient uh, improves, okay? And then, uh, hang on, this is just, uh, I don't think, there's, there's no question here. It's just letting you know what's happening. So, so you're going to do a repeat cholangiogram. Have you looked at a lot of cholangiograms? Uh, no. Okay, well, we already, <laughs> this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at the cholangiogram. I can try to make this bigger if you like, but uh, let's see if this will, I might wreck it. But let's see if that works. That's okay, I can okay. see Okay, you could see it, okay, but now I've like messed it up, so yeah, we'll go. It gives us a break, okay. So I see uh, both my intrahepatic and extrahepatic biliary system. Yeah. Um, uh, there is uh, filling of my cystic duct and gallbladder there as well, it looks like. Uh, I see occlusion of my uh, common bile duct uh, with a filling defect. But yeah. I also see some contrast going distal into the duodenum, so I suspect some uh, of the contrast is getting past, um, past the uh, obstruction. He, it looks like the intrahepatic ductal dilation uh, has resolved if he ever had that, although he only had extrahepatic in the past. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, I do That's see good. a persistent common duct obstruction. Yeah, yeah, we can see that there. That's good. Okay, so, so you can see there's a stone there. So you still don't have access to this advanced sure. endoscopy, and IR can't get to the stone. Okay, now, now what do we do? So uh, now my options are uh, surgical removal of this stone. So um, my options are either laparoscopic or open, mm -hmm. uh, common bile duct exploration, uh, and my laparoscopic options are either transgastric or transcystic. 
uh, and my open option would be an open common bottleneck exploration and stone extraction. Okay, let's see. I think you're supposed to. Okay, so. Okay, so we're waiting till the patient's stable, right? So then you had said that, I think. Maybe you didn't. Okay, maybe that's okay. That's what you would normally say. You're going to wait till they're stable. And that's good. We're okay. Don't worry. You're good. Uh, they don't have any abdominal pain anymore. Okay, but we know that you need to take them to the OR. So let's let's just describe the procedure. Uh, this is your open common bottle. Open, okay. Okay. So um, I position them uh, supine with both arms out. I uh, give them appropriate preoperative antibiotic therapy, SCD stockings, um, and uh, pat all bony prominences. Uh, prep and drape their abdomen in the usual sterile fashion. Start by doing an upper midline laparotomy um, and uh, place a, uh, a fixed retractor like a uh, Thompson Farley. Um, I would. Then start with a um, with uh, exploring my right upper quadrant, um, uh, and begin with a uh, open cholecystectomy. Um, once I've completed my cholecystectomy, I would identify I would uh, identify my common bile duct and my protohepatis um, to allow for appropriate mobilization and exposure before I begin my common bile duct exploration. Once I've isolated my common bile duct, I would uh, make a uh, vertical cholecystectomy um, and uh, extract the stone if possible using uh, Fogarty catheters. Um, if I am able to extract the stone, uh, then I will... Okay, what if, if Fogarty doesn't work? What, what else can you... So, give me some other ways so you get I'll, this thing out. I'll try to flush um, it down. I'll give them a glucagon to see if that can help uh, yeah. in addition to the flush to help um, push the stone down. Um, Fogarty doesn't work. Um... And I can't. Okay, I just wanted you to give me some other methods. So that's good. Okay, let's see. Um, this is just a little bit more here, just to sort of run more time. So, trial of your immunity, you couldn't get the stone out, okay? Still gets stuck. So, it feels impacted. Okay, what are you going to do now? So, a stone that's impacted at the ampulla, uh, I would do a transduodenal sphincteroplasty uh, for this patient. I would, uh, if I was in a center that I had. Um, access to hepatobiliary surgical team, I would ask them to uh, come in for an interoperative consult to help with this procedure because it's something that I haven't done before and I'm not comfortable with. Yep. Um, and uh, then uh, I would proceed with. Uh, and, and if I don't, I didn't think I was able to do it and the hepatobiliary surgery team was not there, then uh, I would repair my cholecystectomy over a, a T-tube, um, knowing that I had proximal drainage of my PTC. And I would send them off to a, a tertiary center for hepatobiliary to perform the procedure. Okay, how do you make the duodenotomy? Which what's um, the direction or describe how you do? It? I know you said you haven't done it, but yeah, just no, go no through problem. the steps of how you would do it. It would be a um, transverse duodenotomy, and I would close it uh, in the uh, in the opposite. It would be a horizontal duodenotomy that I would close transversely to reduce my risk of stricture there. Okay, and where is the cholecystectomy? That's, that's done inside there. Um, oh, sorry. Okay, I tried, tried just getting between, you there. Not between the Recording is on. Right, so we are going to start with question one. So you are called to the emergency department for a 25-year-old male brought in by EMS after he sustained a stab wound to his left chest around the eighth rib. He is intoxicated. What is your initial management? 
um, ABCs, so a uh, quick examination of the patient, is his airway uh, open, um, is he able to talk or not? Um, while we're doing ABCs, I'd ask the nurses to get two large bore IVs, put them up to monitors and oxygen. Um, when I look at his airway, is he, does he have a patent airway? Yep. He's awake, he's talking. He's awake, he's talking. Uh, breathing on his own. Uh -huh. uh, C circulation, so on the left um, side of the chest. Um, eighth rib, we have spleen, um, lung. Um, is there an exit wound that we see or no? And there's no obvious gushing blood anywhere else? No. Okay. Um, so I would want to uh, finish the ABCs. Um, get those lines and get them on the monitors. Um, do a full head-to-toe exam, just quickly, making sure there's no other missed injuries to in the uh, extremities, like the long bones. Uh, do a log roll, check his back, see if there's another injury that we've missed, um, and then get a, a chest X-ray um, in in the uh, trauma bay. Anything else? Get a CT right if he seems stable, fully his own. Do we see uh, any signs of, um, like when we're auscultating his lungs, are we hearing press sounds on yes. both sides? Yeah, so you get them on the monitors, your vitals are as follows. His heart rate's 120, okay. his blood pressure's 125 on 75, you're setting 98% on 3 liters, and his GCS is 14. You find a single stab wound to the left anterior axillary line at the level of the 8th rib. Uh, your fast is equivocal and your chest x-ray shows a left-sided hemothorax. What is the next step in your management? I just place a, place a chest tube on the left side for the hemothorax. Okay. Describe how you're going to do that. Uh, so the patient will still maintain his own airway, uh, line him uh, supine while all of the material is being um, ready. I would also like anesthesia to be in the room. Uh, localize uh, the area, so for aiming for anterior axillary line, fourth space, uh, so anesthetize him, um, make a uh, vertical incision following the rib line, uh, use uh, 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 Kelly's uh, to palpate over top of the ribs and enter just directly over top of the ribs to avoid the neurovascular bundle, um, and then uh, pop into the pleural space with the Kelly's, and then replace uh, the Kelly with a finger and do a finger sweep 360 degrees, to ensure that there's no uh, uh, lung stuck up uh, to the pleura, um, and then place a large bore uh, chest tube into that space, aiming um, apically, and then open the chest tube and put it onto suction. Great, so you do that, you get 300 cc's of blood back right away, then it slows down, your patient's vitals improve, heart rate 105, trauma labs are all normal, um, your, sorry, your hemoglobin's 145, lactate's 2, alcohol level 24. What is the next step in your management? Um, so I'd want to put him on antibiotics and give him a tetanus shot. Um, and then in terms of, uh, do we have any additional information from um, uh, police or EMS about what they found at the scene? Or Nothing more. Just the alcohol level. Um, a full talk screen. In terms of um, just the area of this, because it's a little bit lower, I would want to take him to the CT scanner as long as his heart rate had improved and he's still maintaining his own airway. Uh, to take in the CT scanner for um, uh, uh, chest and abdomen, all this CT scan with contrast. Um, okay, so you do that, um, and uh, all you see is a residual small uh, hemothorax. Patient's vitals are stable. There is some free fluid in the left upper quadrant. The chest tube has slowed down. What is the next step in your management? Free fluid in the left upper quadrant. 
So if the tree fluid in left upper quadrant, I would be concerned that there was a, a transition of this penetrating injury across the diaphragm, potentially into the spleen. So I'd want to put them for exploratory um, laparoscopy at the minimum, with the potential to open. So you do that, you see blood in the left upper quadrant with active bleeding. Uh, you note a two centimeter hole in the left demi-diaphragm and you notice an injury to the stomach on your laparoscopy. What's your next step? Um, so if I had the, the skill and felt confident with like laparoscopic suturing of the diaphragm, stay laparoscopic but most likely open um, uh, and do a full uh, trauma laparotomy just to make sure that we haven't missed anything else. Um, so exploring all four quadrants, making sure that there wasn't a, an injury to the spleen on that side that we couldn't see. And then in terms of the, the perforation or the hole in the stomach, um, depending on where it was, um, uh, if, it, if it was really close and really lacerated or if it's just like an, an in and out sort of injury to suture that closed and patch its momentum. So it's on the greater curvature of the stomach. Uh, and, you, and, and what you see is on the anterior wall. Is there anything else you want to do? I would check the posterior, um, posterior wall. So, so how are you going to do that? So we'll go into the uh, lesser sac and check the posterior wall of the stomach. I want anesthesia to place an NG tube. Um, if it reached the posterior wall, I'd be worried about the pancreas. Okay, so you explore the lesser sac. You see both an anterior and posterior injury to the stomach, and you see a hematoma in the pancreas. So how are you going to manage these injuries? Is the hematoma going across the duct? Like, is it a full... It's just in the tail of the pancreas. It's in the tail of the pancreas. Um, so I'd be worried about an injury to the duct, like the, uh, the main duct of the pancreas. Um, so do a distal if I wasn't confident that that duct was 100% intact. Is there anything else you can do? I could um, leave a drain um, and have him get an MRI postoperatively to rule out uh, a main branch injury, or uh, sorry, a main duct injury. How are you going to repair the stomach? Uh, so, absorbable sutures, close the hole, and then patch it with the momentum. Okay, and how are you going to repair the diaphragm? The diaphragm, non-absorbable sutures, um, depending on how far away from the rib it is, either trying to reattach the diaphragm to the ribs or um, suturing, um, suturing the, the incision closed after washing out the chest. Okay, so you do, you fix that, you close him, um, you leave a drain for the pancreas, um, he's doing fine, chest tubes out. On post-up day five, he becomes febrile and tachycardic, complaining of abdominal pain. What is your management? Um, so if he's hemodynamically stable and holding his pressures, I would want to get him to a CT scanner again. Um, if he's not hemodynamically stable, then just go back to the open approach. So your scan shows a left upper quadrant collection, which you percutaneously drain. Anything you're going to check for? Lipase and amylase. All right, so let's move on to the next question. So you are working in a peripheral hospital. You're called to the emergency department at 2 in the morning to see a 58-year-old male with hematemesis. Uh, it started at 6 p.m. that evening. It seems to be getting worse. He's feeling syncopal. His past medical history, he's on uh, warfarin for atrial fibrillation. He's recently been using a lot of NSAIDs for back pain. His initial heart rate is 120, blood pressure 100 on 60. 
Yes. Hemoglobin is 80 and his INR is 2. He looks pale, but he's not peritonitic. What is your initial management? Uh, initial management would be uh, resuscitation. Uh, so give him a liter of uh, crystalloid. Um, and type and screen them. Yeah. I don't know how accurate that hemoglobin is. Um, in terms of his INR, we can give him um, FFP. So I don't know if this community hospital has access to Octoplex, but if, if it's accessible, then we can give it. Um, differential for this, we're assuming, or most likely differential for this with his history of NSAID use being on work. Um, uh, potential uh, varices you'd worry about, you'd worry about septic ulcer disease, uh, duodenal ulceration. Do you have other medical history from him? Like, do we know what he was doing in the past couple of days? Uh, just the fib on warfarin and the NSAID used for back pain. Okay. And did the, was he vomiting before he had hematemesis? Started at 6 p.m. with hematemesis. Just started at 6 p.m., okay. Um, I would see if we had endoscopy available at that hospital. Right. Anything else you want to do before that? How equipped is our hospital with blood transfusions? Do we have massive yep. transfusion capabilities? Okay, so you give him blood. Um, and so uh, you give them uh, octoplex, you give them four units of uncross matched blood. They stabilize with respect to heart rate and blood pressure. Uh, and you give them a dose of erythromycin. Uh, so you you are the only okay. person there. So you take them to endoscopy. And in D1, you find this. D1. D1, yeah. Is your plan. So uh, that doesn't look like there's an active um, lead there. So uh, there's a bit visible. Yeah, there's a visible vessel. I don't know how okay. well it transmits. Okay. But. Um, uh, see if we could inject it with epinephrine to stop the bleeding. Um, if I could see a, an actual um, vessel coming out of me, then I could uh, try to hemoclip it. Um, okay. I'd want to take biopsies of the area as well. Just to. Since there. Okay. Um, so you clip it, you eject it, the patient actually settles. Uh, they do well overnight, but okay. then overnight, uh, in the next morning, you find that their hemoglobin dropped to the 60s. You give them blood, you resuscitate them. Uh, you take them back to endo, and you see an active bleeding vessel that you cannot control. The patient is now tachycardic, dropping their pressure. You are at a site that does not have interventional radiology. Okay. What is your plan? So if we don't have interventional radiology generalization, so we go uh, to the OR for uh, a laparotomy uh, to see if we can access the vessel externally. So, okay, so describe your approach in the OR. You, uh, so there's no blood visible in the belly. No blood visible in the belly. So up the midline uh, laparotomy, um, we can uh, mobilize the stomach and then feel um, uh, the duodenum to see if we can feel that area that uh, has a hematoma in it. Um, Any specific maneuvers you're going to do? It's in the first portion of the duodenum. We could uh, fully mobilize the duodenum. So if we uh, uh, took down the hat flexure and then dissected along the 
duodenum to lift it up and really mobilize it so you can get better visualization. Okay. So all the blood is intraluminal, so what's your next step? Take the anterior wall of the duodenum and make an incision along it, and then we're able to open it better visualize where the bleeding is coming from. Are we able to see that area? Okay, so you do that, you make okay. the longitudinal duodenotomy, and you see just blood. Just blood. Um, could use suction and compression to try to uh, locate the exact area. So you see the ulcer, you see the visible vessel, it's there, it's bleeding, you control the bleeding. So is there anything you can do to definitively manage that? Definitively manage the bleeding. This visible bleeding ulcer. Okay. Other than resecting it? Other than resecting it. Can we inject with epi now that we can see it? So you do that, but still it's bleeding. still bleeding. The clips aren't working. No. Okay. Okay, so you, you actually end up putting in some U-stitches above and below, okay? And then the patient becomes jaundiced uh, on post-op day two. What, did, what are you gonna do? We'll just finish this question. So we put in U-stitches. I would be afraid that we might have um, gone through. So we'll just give you a couple of minutes to wrap up, and then I think we can do a debrief together. Um, and the I'd be afraid we've gone through the posterior side and then uh, caught the common bile duct in that in that movement and then basically constricted the common bile duct. Okay, so how are you gonna manage that? They're jaundiced, their bilirubin's ribbon's hundred. So I'd want if I'm in a if I'm in a spot where I can get a PTC, you can drain it externally. Um, if we can transfer them to hepatobiliary, because they will eventually need um, hepatobiliary reconstruction. Um, the PTC would be would buy us time for draining their biliary tract. So we could get the PTC and then transfer them, them to hepatobiliary. Because I don't think you'd be able to go through endoscopically and stent it open if it was a stitch. Uh, yeah, okay. We'll end the question there. Generally, um, you're going to stitch with uh, dissolvable sutures, okay. so they will dissolve. They will dissolve? Yeah. Okay. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback, so send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.